The story of the Old Testament is really the story of Israel repeating the same mistakes over and over again. God blesses them with prosperity, and then they turn around and take that prosperity, that blessing, and they use it to chase after other gods. So if you really want to boil down the Old Testament narrative into one message for Israel, it's this. Learn from history and repent. Don't make the mistakes of your forefathers. Learn from their lessons so that you can avoid God's discipline and experience God's blessing. And Zechariah chapters 10 to 11 continue that prophetic tradition, that prophetic message. And the way that it continues that message is that Zechariah contrasts uh, God, the good shepherd, with the wicked shepherds of Israel's leaders. So if you think about that shepherd imagery, somebody leading sheep, feeding sheep, protecting sheep, the leaders of Israel are viewed as shepherds. And God himself is the great shepherd, the one who cares for his flock. And Zechariah is going to play on these themes and these images in a sort of live action sign. He's going to live out a message before them symbolically to remind Israel of their true shepherd, of their true source of peace and provision and protection, and the one true shepherd who leads them to the green pastures and through the dark valley, and that is Yahweh, their covenant God. Yahweh, the one in whom all their future hopes rests. God is their ultimate hope. God is their good shepherd. This is Understanding Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 gives a future vision of God's coming Messiah who brings righteousness and salvation. He is this promised king that's going to come to Jerusalem and be the light that God has promised to them. And God will reign as a shepherd, a good shepherd over his flock, and that will ensure the peace and prosperity of his people. So that's Zechariah 9 as we go into Zechariah 10 and 11. And by contrast, Zechariah 10 and 11 show evil shepherds, wicked shepherds, that lead Israel astray, and that incurs the discipline of God, the wrath of God. In Zechariah chapter 10, God promises to judge Israel's evil shepherds and reunite his flock into one people. Then in Zechariah chapter 11, God symbolically retells through Zechariah the story of Israel's rejection of him as their shepherd, as a warning to remain faithful this time around, learn from the mistakes of the past. So let's look at that first section in the first five verses of Zechariah 10, where, where God pronounces a judgment against wicked shepherds, false shepherds. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain. To everyone, the vegetation in the field, for the household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Chapter 10 begins with a call for Israel to ask the one who makes the storm clouds to give them showers of rain. 
It's important to remember that Israel did not have a large river like Egypt did, like the Nile River, to irrigate their crops, but they relied solely on rain from the sky, on rain from heaven. The nations around Israel worshipped the storm god Baal, and he brought rain from the sky. But Israel, in contrast, was to worship and rely on Yahweh alone for provision. They weren't to turn toward Baal or to offer sacrifices to this false god. They were to rely on God alone. Pagans used household gods, little figurines of wood and clay, to entreat the gods for favor. But Zechariah, inspired by the Spirit, is saying that they're deluded. Household gods can't speak, much less cause rain to fall from the sky. It's utterly ridiculous. Going toward idolatry is going toward irrationality and insanity and darkness. And they're diviners, people who can communicate with the spirits. They don't give truthful messages. They're liars. They're charlatans often. And people who follow follow after false gods, they wander around like lost sheep without a shepherd. So there's a contrast. And you have to think about the temptation. If you're Israel and you're going, man, I I need rain for my crops. And you're wondering, is this going to be a good season or not? You're going to think to yourself, well, maybe I can worship Yahweh. But also, just just for insurance, I'm going to give a little offering to Baal. I'm going to turn toward these other gods just in case God doesn't come through. But that's idolatry. It's not just worshiping false gods instead of the true God, but also worshiping false gods alongside the true God. And that's something that they want, that that the prophets are, are rebuking Israel for doing. You only have one shepherd. You don't follow any other shepherds. God is the one who's going to give you rain from the sky and make sure that you are prospering and that you are fed and protected. But Israel's shepherds, the kings and the priests, the leaders of the nation, they failed to direct the flock to worship God, but instead they led their people to wander off into idolatry. They have become like lost sheep without a shepherd, just like the nations around them. So Israel, instead of being a beacon of what it's like to be a nation under the blessing of God, to be God's flock, they're acting more like the nations who are lost flocks, who don't have good shepherds. They're becoming like the nations instead of the nations becoming more like them. But unlike the false shepherds, God, the true shepherd, cares for his flock, and he burns with anger against those who lead them astray. So he's not going to let these false leaders get away with what they're doing. He's going to succeed where the false shepherds failed, by forging Israel into into a majestic uh, steed, a battle bow, a horde of mighty men that trample over enemies. He will rise up as a cornerstone, which is a symbol later used of the Messiah, of Christ. And he's going to lead mighty men of Israel to victory. This is, again, a shocking prophecy, considering the fact that Israel, at the time of Zechariah's prophecy, remains under the rule of Persia. And later, Persia is going to fall to the Greeks under Alexander, and the Greeks will fall to the Romans. So Israel is just tossed and turned and constantly under these foreign kings. And so this idea that God's going to raise them up in victory, that God is going to transform their fortunes, that God is doing something in their midst, is probably far-fetched without eyes of faith. But God promises he's going to strengthen his people and answer their cries for deliverance, just like he has before in the times of the Exodus or the various victories that Israel won throughout their history. And so even though Israel's history shows that God is going to discipline for sin, it also shows that God is incredibly merciful. He is willing to accept repentance. He's willing to hear confession. He's willing to restore his people if they will just Stop trusting these other gods. It's almost, it's that simple and that difficult. Don't trust in anyone else to save you. Your devotion to me begins by first saying, you alone, Yahweh, are are our true shepherd. You're, You're the only one who can help us. You're the only one who has the power and the might and the glory to be our redemption and our salvation. And this theme of redemption leads us to the next 
section in chapter 10, verses 6 through 12. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, Till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. There's a reference here to Judah, Joseph, and Ephraim, which signifies that the return from exile also brings about the long-promised reunification of the tribes of Israel. So if you remember, after King Solomon, Israel splits into two kingdoms, northern Israel, which is often called Ephraim, and southern Israel, which is referred to as Judah. God exiled northern Israel by the capital city of Samaria, falling to the Assyrian king Sargon II in 722 BC. So the northern kingdom, they're kind of a little more accelerated, so to speak, in their idolatry. So they actually end up in exile first under the Assyrian kingdom in 722 BC. Centuries later, in 597 BC, God then exiles Judah to the land of Babylon, and they destroy the first temple, the temple that Solomon built, and they're taken into exile. And that's the story of the book of Daniel. So both halves of Israel are sent into exile. Yet the prophets over and over again prophesy of a future day when not only would the tribes of Israel return to the land, but they would be reunited, reunified. And although the returned Israelites are small in number and possess a tiny fraction of their former land, God is still enacting his promises. The exiles do not return with strong tribal identities, but with this unified identity of being a Jew. There's this sort of this new term where it's not about Judah or Ephraim, but you guys are now Jews. You guys are a new entity now that you're back in the land. And their initial return and the sort of the, the beginning portions of this reunification are only a foretaste of a future in-gathering that God talks about. That in the future, beyond even their day, God is going to whistle, which is often a term of him bringing people out of exile, whistle for the remainder of his people scattered among the nations to return to Zion. So not everybody returned from Babylon. Some people decide to stay in Babylon instead of go back to the land. Other people had intermixed with the Assyrian Empire, which became Babylon, which became Persia. So they're spread out all throughout the ancient Near East. So you have to have a perspective on this because the return to exile population is very small and there are many more Jews spread out uh, among the nations. But God is still saying, no, I'm still working. Even though you can't really see it, I am doing something in your midst, beginning something that I've promised long ago that I'm, I'm seeing through till the end. So God's going to whistle one day and he's going to signal a sort of exodus type event in which God God gathers his people out of Egypt and Assyria back into the land by passing through the Sea of Troubles. That's a direct quote from this passage. And, and striking down the waves of the sea so that all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Now, this, this language is interesting. He's drawing on Exodus language. 
He's basically saying, I'm gonna use language of the past to give you some kind of way to grasp what I'm gonna do in the future. This language points beyond just the initial return of this group of returned exiles to a greater cosmic ingathering of God's people. And I think Egypt and Assyria here are stand-ins for all the nations of the world. Remember, Old Testament prophecy features a near and a far horizon. The near horizon is the return of the exiles. Right, under the Persian king. But there's a further, greater horizon that, that encompasses all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, gathering in from all the nations. And that's why in the book of Acts, whenever different nations and the Gentiles start streaming, and whenever, whenever Jesus is preaching to Gentiles and they're believing, whenever these things start to happen, it's actually not something new, but it's actually a full flowering of the initial promises God has here. That when he calls his people from the nations, it's not just ethnic Jews, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he's calling them through the word of the gospel, bringing them into his people, bringing them into the new Jerusalem of the church, establishing what he has promised here. And we're just hearing it in language, in Old Testament language in Zechariah's context, with Exodus language, but that it's sort of prefiguring what's going to come to full bloom in the New Testament. But it's not all uh, hunky-dory good news. There's some Harsh words God has as well. So there's this warning of a flock that is doomed to slaughter. And that's chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Chapter 11 is one of the most difficult prophecies to interpret, I think, really in the Bible. It's difficult to place it where its context is, how it fits within the chronology of Zechariah. So this is our best attempt, I think. Uh, it, it begins with a cry of despair. God devours the mighty cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. And oak trees and cedars are the pinnacle of longevity and strength. They're these sort of eternal kinds of things, immovable. But even they cannot stop the wrath of God. God comes through like a torrential force of nature that causes shepherds and lions to roar in agony. The lion is the apex predator, and, and he's terrified. Could this be a prophecy of God's judgment on the nations? Perhaps. Or maybe it symbolizes a judgment upon Israel, for the temple itself was actually constructed with cedar and cypress from the nations. It's hard to tell, and commentators are divided. But I think either way, the big idea is that God will not allow his people to remain under the oppression of evil shepherds. That God cares for and is jealous for his own people. So then we move on to the Lord calling another shepherd with the unenviable task of leading a flock doomed to slaughter. Not really a great call to ministry, if you will. This slaughter comprises of God's flock being sold by false shepherds to sheep traders. And what's fascinating is God actually refuses to step in to save them. He says, I'm, I'm no longer going to have pity on my flock. But rather, he lets them fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So 
God is merciful, but sometimes his mercy is difficult. Sometimes he gives people over to their sin as an act of discipline and maybe even an act of purification. And that's what we start to see here. And I think what's happening is that God is giving a retrospective history of his relationship with Israel. He's not speaking about future events for them, but he's really kind of looking back on their history and saying, I want you to learn from the way that you have treated me in the past. God is the shepherd of a flock doomed to slaughter because they continually rebel against him. That's the story of Israel. They're the flock doomed to slaughter. They're sheep that reject their shepherd and they get they run off and, and just get eaten by wolves. And God's saying to his flock, I'm not gonna bail you out anymore. If you wanna follow those false shepherds, go right ahead. I will give you over. It's a terrifying judgment, a terrifying discipline. And God once again reminds his people what got them into their current predicament. They rejected the Lord, their gracious shepherd. They wandered after false gods, the, the gods of their neighboring nations. So God says, go have it. He lets them be captured by those surrounding nations. He lets them go into exile as a judgment. So if you want to be like other nations so much, then go ahead. Join them as captives. So again, it's, this is a retrospective of the past of Israel And it's meant to inform their present and to inform their future, to say, don't make the mistakes of the past. Don't be a flock doomed to slaughter because God will be faithful to his word. Don't make the mistakes of the past. Learn from the past. And then we see in the following verses, Zechariah performing what's called a sign act, which is a live action playing out of God's relationship to Israel through the Old Testament. It's a a dramatic, played out in real time vision. Uh, And we hear this vision of a worthless shepherd. That's verses 7 to 17. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So Zechariah plays the role of God, the great shepherd. And he he takes two staffs, one named Favor and the other Union. And he destroys three shepherds to protect his people. That might be a reference to Israel's corrupt rulers. But his flock detests him. Even though he does good for them, he's met with rebellion and resistance. So then he says, look, I'm not going to be your shepherd then. What is to die, let it die. He's, again, he gives them over to their sin. I think, again, this is the retrospective of Israel's history up to this point. And then he takes the, the favor staff and he snaps it. And that's a sign, a live dramatic enactment of, of a symbolic message. It's a sign of a broken covenant. And he gives an ultimatum to his people. You either obey me as shepherd or find another shepherd, right? I'm going to quit. So 
Israel, shocking, they, they, they pay off God with 30 pieces of silver, which of course is the amount Judas received from the chief priests for betraying Christ. Interesting connection there. And God takes that payment and he gives it to the potter in the house of the Lord. The potter refers to the foundry, which is where gold and silver offerings were melted and placed into the temple treasury. So those funds were likely given to Persia as a tax payment, which paints a somber picture. In rejecting their shepherd, Israel is actually giving their, their, their wealth away to the nations. Then God snaps in half his staff called Union, which signifies the breaking of Israel into Judah and northern Israel. So basically he's saying again, when he, when he snaps the first staff, his favor is gone. That all their riches are now going to go into the other nations via exile. And he's going to snap their union. He's going to divide Israel into two parts. And, and again, this is a symbolic retelling of Israel's history. Israel divides into two nations after Solomon. And then they, they go after other gods. And they end up both in exile. And all their riches and their prosperity become something that, that enriches the nations around them. So this is a composite of Israel's rebellious History, divided kingdom, wicked kings, priests, rejection of God, false gods, exile, all this stuff. So Israel rejects her faithful shepherd and receives unfaithful shepherds as a, as a judgment. And now God tells Zechariah to play out the role of a foolish shepherd who does not care for his people but deserts the flock. And this encapsulates all the foolish kings and leaders that ruled over Israel prior to the exile. But it may also foreshadow the wicked shepherds of King Herod and the corrupt priesthood in Jesus' day. Remember, Jesus is showing up, and there is a Jewish, quote-unquote, king, King Herod, but he's an illegitimate heir to the throne. He's a terrible guy. He's built this lavish temple. The temple's rebuilt. It's more beautiful than ever before, but it's corrupt from the inside out. The Pharisees are enemies of Christ. They're rejecting Christ. So all these things are happening in Jesus' day, and it's showing that they're still being run by wicked shepherds. And it's kind of it's a little depressing because even Zechariah's efforts to turn them away are not going to be fully effective because when Jesus shows up on the scene in the first century, Israel is just as corrupt as it's ever been, possibly even worse. So this is probably a foreshadowing of, of those future wicked, wicked shepherds as well. It just goes to show there's nothing new under the sun. You know? uh, in, in either case, Zechariah 11 paints a grim picture of human sin. God promises Israel Messiah, but the real question is, will they accept him? It's, it's not a question of whether God's going to be faithful. It's, it's when he does show up as faithful, are we going to repeat history? Are we just going to take his faithfulness and run with it to go after other gods, to be sinful? Or will we respond in, in faith and obedience? History says no. Right? Apart from grace, we respond to God's grace. Uh, unless he changes our hearts, we're always going to respond to his grace and his kindness provision with, with pride. And we see this with Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the very people he came to save. Apart from grace, we'd be right there with him, with the crowd that scorned and mocked him. We, we got to be humble about that. Apart from the grace of God, we're no better. We don't want to be uh, the, 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 the flock doomed to slaughter, but, but our hearts gravitate us toward that. And it's only by grace that we turn toward God. Uh, we don't want to be led by the good shepherd because we are by nature bad sheep. That's the kind of thing. I mean, Sheep are going to be sheep, even redeemed sheep, even Christians, even us as God's flock. You know, we, we still have sin. We still struggle with sin. We're, we're still stubborn in a lot of ways. And the grace of God is our only hope. It's, it's that very thing, the very powerful presence of God that transforms us into people who hear the voice of our shepherd and follow him wherever he leads. So when you read these it's kind of odd passages about Israel's history and all that stuff. Don't, don't get lost in the weeds of when it happens and what's the symbolism. Zoom out and see, okay, here's the, the picture being composed. That Israel responds poorly 
God's kindness. And yet God responds to their poor response with more grace and love and mercy. And sometimes that mercy can be difficult. It can take the form of a trial, of exile, of giving people over to their sin for a time to purify them. But the promises of God are always sure because they're founded not in the obedience of his people, but in his own faithfulness to his own word. And what we see in Jesus Christ is God showing and embodying what faithfulness looks like. Jesus Christ represents the true and faithful Israel. He takes the curse of exile upon himself in his death and resurrection. And his resurrection brings about the restoration and renewal of all things. It's the first fruits of a future harvest. So in the death and resurrection of Christ, we see God atoning for Israel's sins, for the sins of his people, spiritual Israel, but also rising again to bring about a, a resurrected Israel that we see in the church. And that's a wonderful thing that we're so messed up and broken and so sinful, so in love with our sin that apart from divine action, apart from God coming in the flesh to redeem our humanity, apart from his atoning work on the cross, apart from any of that stuff, we're going to be lost forever in our sin. But Zechariah 10 through 11 is again pointing us Our only hope is the lavish mercy of God. Our only hope is that God justifies the ungodly. And without that, we have nothing. But with that, we have everything.